0: This uh, series on 1 Peter has been a lot of fun to write and preach. Um, Starting this week, you'll hear more about this in a minute, but starting this week, we're starting like a mini-series within the series. It's two weeks of sermons that are connected to one another. Uh, The first one in this little two-week mini-series is called The Eternal Lamb. Next week's sermon is going to be called The Eternal Word. Megan is excited about this because a lot of the sermon is written already, which makes her job of picking music a lot easier, instead of me not having any idea what's happening till Wednesday. So she has an, uh, an update pretty quickly. So this eternal lamb message, <clears throat> it's going to stretch some of you theologically. I think some of you might come from a theological background that either has never heard this concept or has heard it and it has been rejected but I think it's a beautiful theological concept that we're going to study today. Now, in the way of introduction, when you experience true heartbreak like these first-century believers that we've been studying in 1 Peter have been in what's modern-day Turkey, when you're experiencing true suffering, any type of adversity that's real, it's really hard to think about anything else but what you're going through. Nothing puts the human heart into a prison of now, like suffering and loss. Especially if that human does not have a hope that is fixed on eternity. Suffering devours your attention. Suffering dominates your emotions. It crowds out your thoughts and your intellect. It siphons off your earthly resources as you seek to deal with it and and look for comfort. Sometimes suffering seems like an insurmountable monumental burden and just simply figuring out how to take the next breath and make it through the day seems like a task too too big. In the fire of suffering, you're just trying to do your best to survive and to help those you love survive with you. And it's in these moments that we desperately need something captivating enough to comfort us, something strong enough to divert us, something great enough to transcend that particular moment and that particular place of hardship. It's sort of like how a great song makes you reflect on the past. A great song that can remind you of a happier time, maybe in your youth, or maybe it's a song that inspires hope for a better future. And that's what our next two sermons are, where Peter teaches some beautiful, captivating theological songs to suffering believers for just this purpose, to give them a chance to escape the prison of now. We will learn the theology, yes, the theology, necessary to thrive amid suffering, and exist outside of the prison of now. Let's look at our passage this week. Verses 18 to 21 of chapter 1. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. And yes, as you see, I put in bold the word foreknown. That was not a typo. That was on purpose. Look at the history of this passage. What about man? What does he do and why and how does he do it? I want you to see how Paul attempts to provide for these suffering believers theological comfort. It's not counseling, it's not psychology, it's not psychiatry, it's not meds, it's theology. Remember, these precious saints are enduring some of the worst persecution in church history at the hands of Nero in Rome. Not only were they also being crucified, a gruesome enough death, they were being used as sport for hunting, scented with the blood of other animals and gone out and being hunted by lions and things like that, trained lions. So they were, they were hunting fodder. They were victims of extremely gory, very gory mob violence. They were receiving threats to their children. They were used as car, as tar-covered human torches to light up parties that Roman officials were having in their courtyards. They were imprisoned. They were tortured. They were stoned. They were gored in coliseums by wild animals for sport. And the culture of disdain for Christians is running deep. For them, there seems to be no end in sight to this suffering. It doesn't take much imagination to comprehend how they would believe that their present suffering, which is consuming their every waking moment, has no end. They were in this constant, heavy tension of remaining faithful to their savior and still being living in fear of roman retribution hope for an end to the tyranny or maybe some sort of revolution to the roman government seems to be foolish it is in fact a hugely imminent threat that is dominating their every thought so you can see why these precious believers would need comfort To remain faithful, to remain holy. Remember, we talked about the process of holiness that is the result of their hope being fixed on this great hope. And if you haven't heard it, you should really go back and catch up on the first four of this series because they're all built upon one another like bricks. To remain faithful and to, to remain holy, they need to keep their hope fixed on this great salvation, but they're going to need something transcendent to enable them to do so. I mean, it's really easy to say something, oh, you're suffering, well, just keep your hope fixed on heaven. It's almost like, oh, you're suffering, I'll pray for you. They need something more. They need something capable of carrying hearts and minds to a different existence. They need something to enable them, while they're in the prison of now, to exist in a heavenly frame of reference. They need something transcendent. Peter wants to galvanize his brothers and sisters in Christ to continue on their path to holiness that he says that they have been marching on gloriously. And he started off in the very first part of this chapter, if you remember, he started off by calling them the elect exiles. The elect. And he says, you are the elect living with living hope. And he says, your faith has been tested. That was week two. He says, you are participants in this greatest story ever told, that drama of redemption. And he teaches them, and you are holy because your holiness is a byproduct of this living hope, which you are relentlessly fixed on day to day. But Peter knows they're going to need a deeper understanding of why this living hope of theirs is so compelling and so transcendent. See, their living hope, this is where people make a mistake, their living hope isn't just some mere substitute for their old past dying hopes. Their living hope is superior in every way. And Peter wants to explain why. This hope is something that is, in fact, able to captivate their intellect and inspire hurting, broken hearts, even in their worst moments. So Peter, who is, by the way, a former commercial fisherman inspires a persecuted church with incredible literary brilliance inspired by the Holy Spirit. He provides some of the most comforting, beautiful theological concepts in all of Scripture. It's like my five favorite verses. He shares with them theology that, in fact, and we know this for, we know this for truth, he shares with them theology that becomes the subject of songs and hymns that this church would sing together for generations to come. The timeless foreknowledge and prognosis of Heavenly Father's plan of redemption for his chosen children through his son, Jesus. All right. You ready for the spiritual? What about God? What does he do and why and how does he do it? I want to talk about God's foreknowledge. The first thing I want to teach you about is the foreknown lamb. To fully appreciate Peter's mastery, we must go back to the very foundation he laid for this whole chapter in verse 1. We preached on it, but I'm going to go back there. It's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1a and 2a. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It is the same word, foreknowledge, that we see in verses 20 today. That's not a coincidence. See, what Peter does now is, after I've laid out for you the fact that he's talking to elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God, he then goes and uses an experiential concept that these suffering believers could definitely relate to, which is, The suffering with the blood of Jesus. Experientially, they can certainly relate, right? To suffering at the hands of evil rulers and government. The bloodshed that comes from that. What Peter does is he experientially connects them to the suffering Jesus. Then Peter masterfully connects them yet again to Jesus. By using the same root word he used in verse 1. In verse 20 today. And that is this word. Prognosmenou. That sounds like I'm really smart, doesn't it? I worked on it for four hours this week. Don't be impressed. It comes from a Greek root word, prognoskino. We get the English word prognosis. It means to foreknow. It means to predetermine. It's a beautiful word. It is a perfect passive participle. Here's why that's important. It's very theological. A perfect action is an action that has been completed in the past that continues to have rippling, lasting results and impact. It has is, it is produced, this past action, it has produced a persistent condition as its result. That's what perfect means. It's not past, present, or future. It is perfect. The passive part is pretty amazing. That means the object is acted upon. It's not doing the acting, it's not doing the foreknowing. The object is foreknown. That object being the Lamb of God. Active would be what happened at the cross, where the Lamb of God died by his choice. But the prognosis, the foreknowledge of the Lamb of God becoming the sacrifice for us and our sins on the cross is something done by the Father. It's passive to the Lamb of God. So it's a perfect passive participle, a verb used to describe an object. The object, we know because of the beautiful, excellent precision of the Greek language, the object is the Lamb of God, the foreknown Lamb of God. Hence the title of the message, the Eternal Lamb. It all ends up, this word, this, this very long word with all these endings and all these little uh, indexes and all these little things put in it, right? It's so different from the, from the root word. There's a lot of different letters in there. It's so that it can be presented as a perfect passive participle that all comes together in a stunning theological conclusion. Jesus was prognosed. foreknown by the Father, before the world was created as the suffering Lamb of God. The cross wasn't a surprise. It was not God's response to their sinfulness or ours. It was, in fact, the suffering of Jesus. It was always God's sovereign will. It was always his timeless plan from the very beginning. Before they were even born, before they even became pagans, God had predetermined Jesus would suffer the cross to redeem them, these pagan Gentiles, from their old life. So that's the foreknown lamb. Let's talk about the foreknown elect. See, it wasn't just Jesus, as we see this in in verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 1. It wasn't just Jesus that was foreknown and predetermined as redeemer. So were those he redeemed. Back to verse 1 again. You ready? Look what it says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, the Greek word means chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God, same word. Some people don't like that it's the same word. It's not my fault. It's the same word. Prognosis, foreknowledge, forethought, prearrangement. It's the same root word in verse 1 that's again in verse 20. It isn't random. It's an important intentional theology. This intentional, connective narrative makes foreknowledge, in fact, the core component of Peter's message in all of chapter 1. And the beautiful precision of ancient Greek ties the elect in verse 1 with the lamb in verse 20 with undeniable grammatical evidence. No one can read and no ancient Greek and read this and not see, oh, there's definitely a grammatical connection between verse 1 and verse 20. The foreknowledge. It's the same tense, the same verb, the same concept. It's fascinating. The the redeemer wasn't the only prognosis, but also the redeemed. Before the foundation of the world. To blow your mind even further, if this were a song, this is where it might get like explicit lyrics warning, right? Theological explicit lyrics, not like cussing. This isn't an aorist or a past tense kind of thing. It's a perfect tense. It's a continuing state of impact. And it doesn't mean, well, foreknowledge, God just figured it out. It doesn't mean that God is so smart that he predicted what would happen. That's not what it says here. No, the Greek language is not you you get around the fact that it's not just something he figured out would take place. He didn't predict it, like the weather. No, this word means he authored it, the whole thing. I love how Paul lays it out, using some of the same Greek words. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called, and actually the Greek says, "the called, according to his purpose for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren and those whom he predestined he also called and those he called he also justified do you see the process of holiness here and those he justified he also glorified do you see that process there we talked about last week fix your hope and you are holy I just get chills reading that passage in light of First Peter: "The Lamb and his elect were prognosed, selected, predestined, before the foundation of the world." This concept of prognosis and predetermination of the Lamb and the elect for those whom the Lamb died is so comforting to me. And the last part of Peter's theological song today is brilliant. He describes this predestined act of redemption as being manifested in real time in their lives. This glorious prognosis was manifested at the cross for them to experience all the benefits of right then, right now, as they are suffering. He masterfully, Peter does, he inserts into their moment of suffering the hopeful, comforting, transcendent prognosis of heavenly death. And there is nothing Nero can do to stop it. Even Jesus said, all those the Father has given to me will come. You can see why there is historical evidence that the early church made this theology into a habit of singing. Singing songs about this great salvation. Can you see why they'd be so inspired by it? Okay. Personal. What about us? What are we supposed to do? and Why and how do we do it? I've entitled this section Comfort and Sovereignty. This was the sermon preview this week. Without Christ, life is an inescapable prison of now. Pursuing a carrot you may get to nibble on once in a while. Oh, that's good, right? That's good. good. (laughs) Let me tell you what I mean by the prison of now. This life forces you, forces me, us, to live sequentially right all we're allowed to do is live moment by moment it's what I like to call the prison of now life on earth has no reality that we can experience other than living one second at a time you cannot go back to spent moments or spent seconds You cannot jump forward to moments or seconds you have not yet experienced. You are forced to wait for each one of those. Then once a moment or a second is lived, it cannot be relived again. Nor can it be rewritten. It's spent and it's done. Without Jesus, life's only purpose is to make as many moments as palatable as possible. That's really all life is without Jesus. And what we try to do as humans in this human experience as we live second by second, moment by moment, we work really hard to try to link these moments together hoping it will paint some sort of illusion of purpose. Some sort of meaning. If we can link them together correctly, it might give us some overarching sense of fulfillment. And we plan and we strategize We attempt to shape our future moments as best we can, but no matter how good our plans are, it's still always out of our hands, is it not? That's why life without Jesus is so tragic. Even if your life in Jesus is comprised of mostly minutes and seconds that go well, what then? You still die in the prison of now. There must be more. But where do we go? How can we escape the cold, hard reality that we are bound to live in a prison of now moment by moment, second by second? Paul describes it. This is where we need to get if we're going to escape the prison of now. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it... Not for it, but from it. Fascinating. It's another sermon. From it, we await a Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. If I was preaching Philippians, I would explain to you, that means a body that is not a part of the prison of now. That's the only escape from the prison of now, is this right here. This is what these precious believers in 1 Peter understood. This is why the theology of the sovereignty of heavenly God, heavenly Father, heavenly Dad, the eternal Lamb is so important. Because once we begin to grasp the theology of God's prognosis, we are now capable of understanding what it means to live moments outside of the prison of now, redeeming the time because the days are evil. You ever heard of that verse? And when we come to the humbling moment that we relent our human will to this theology, it brings us comfort. We become people living in this world, but not prisoners to it. Contemplate this. This is the explicit lyrics part I was telling you about. Because of God's prognosis, his election, hell was never meant to be a moment, if you're a child of God, that you would face despite your depravity. No matter what evil has been arrayed against your soul, no matter how deep your depravity has run, the prognosis has been before the foundation of the world, secure. And this fact is what will make that day of salvation in heaven so amazing. What? You thought it was going to be great just because it was a stunning view from the clouds? That's not what makes that day so good. It will be the complete manifestation of his full, stunning sovereignty that captivates completely our hearts and minds at that moment where we say, wow, that's a big picture. So that's why that happened. So that's why this took place. So that's why there was a global pandemic. So that's why this took wow I want to talk about a song of sovereignty I mentioned music a couple times early on today and what is a song really? think about this a song really is just a series of rhythmic moments captured by an artist and we can only enjoy that art one moment at a time no matter how great the song is, all you can really hear is all the instruments playing together and the vocal is singing together at that second, and then that second is gone. That's really all a song is, right? A series of artistically captured moments. We can enjoy a song one moment at a time. And what makes music great is when that series of moments begins to create an anticipation of the next moment. And when the organization and the rhythm of the musical moments fulfill that anticipation of what you were hoping to hear, and you hear it and it pleases you, oh man, that's wonderful. That's when we start putting it on repeat. That's when we start looking up the lyrics. We begin to become intimately familiar with the rhythms. We listen for what the other instruments are doing. Can you pick out the guitar there? Oh, that sounds great. We start to learn the different movements. Maybe there's a key change or a rhythm change. We start to oh, this is my favorite part. Listen, right here. It's wonderful. We start to memorize the melody. It gets stuck in our head. We dive into the meaning. What did the artist mean to say behind it? And that musical moment or that series of musical moments begins to transport us momentarily out of the present, back in time, or maybe to a future. The very best songs are beloved for decades. I see young people that are 16 years old talking about how great Led Zeppelin is. I'm not supposed to say that in church, am I, Led Zeppelin? I'm not supposed to say that. Sometimes great songs last centuries, like the hymns this first century church wrote. See, good theology, like Peter lays it out, is just like a great song. A song we love to sing. We love great songs, don't we? We like to hear them again and again. Sometimes we get tired of them, then we forgot how great it was because we hear it again and we start listening again. You ever get a song in your head you can't get out? A favorite song, You Can't Stop Humming? I've had one for three days. Matter of fact, the last two nights I've woken up at 3 a.m. and it's in my head. I've been watching recordings of my dear brother Al singing, you know the song he used to sing that we love by I Am Redeemed, right? And we loved it, why? I mean, yes, it sounded good, but we just know he believed every word of it. When he sings it. And there's incredible theology in that song sung by a heart that believes every moment. That's what the theology of the sovereignty of God is. It's a timeless melody that makes our hearts sing every time. It's why good theology is so important, church. It's why Peter took the risk of writing this letter in the first place. Because he knew they needed something. Look, this world is full of theological and philosophical songs that start off really good and end horribly out of tune. They build your expectations and the ending is tragic. You know what they are? They're really just songs about the prison of now. Written and sung by people hopelessly bound by the prison of now's chains. But the theological song of our Father's foreknowledge, boy, that song is flawless. It's perfectly arranged. Not a rhythm or a note or a movement out of place. It's a song for the elect redeemed, inspired by evidence of their majestic, brilliant faith that Peter's been describing this whole chapter And we see it in evidence by the brilliant faith of our past brothers and sisters. It's also inspired, this beautiful theological song of God's foreknowledge, it's inspired by the majestic, brilliant faith of us and our fellow brothers and sisters we live with now as we see the Father unfolding His plan right before our eyes. Look, I can't fully understand it. I can't even sufficiently describe its its majesty. I can't really comprehend its enduring, glorious, echoing on repeat impact. But I love this theology. Church, I love the theology of God's foreknowledge. It is my favorite one. Are you allowed to have a favorite theology? Well, I hope so because I have one. It's this one. He has made us his elect through the foreknown eternal lamb, just as he did these first century pagans. Look, it's an edgy, offensive theological song with explicit lyrics. It's not your choice, it's his. People don't like that one. And some, listen, and there are some who love Jesus who still can't yet fully surrender to this theology. And that's okay. But I know this. My Father has sovereign foreknowledge over the fate of my soul through the foreknown eternal Lamb. To me, personally, man, that is sweet, comforting music to my ears. It's a song that I can sing no matter what painful moments this world, this prison of now, might break. Heavenly Father, oh, Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that You are a God with foreknowledge. We are stunned that You would bother to choose sinners like us We're amazed that you, before the foundation of the world, determined that your son would be the Lamb of God, who would shed his blood on the cross so that we might live. Lord, we don't know everything about what's happening in the process of salvation. Sometimes we see things and we're amazed by them. A lot of it we miss but I can't wait for that day of salvation when we're with you, and the view we get is one that gives us a full understanding of, wow, he had it all in his hand the whole time. Lord, that is a very comforting theological song that you've placed in our hearts. Because we too are elect exiles. People who would never choose you on our own people who would never love you unless you first loved us. Lord, I pray that you would allow our hearts to fully surrender any last bastion of our hold on free will to your sovereign grace. And I pray that you would make it a song that we hum over and over no matter what the world may bring. We thank you that we no longer have to live in the prison of now. And it's in the name of the eternal lamb that we pray this. Amen. Love you. Go this week knowing that you have been given the grace of God by the eternal lamb.